can't choose to be artistic. You know, we're, we're not artists, we're artisans. It's history that will decide later whether we are artists in our work. And the best we can do about that right now is just to live in an artistic lifestyle. To, you know, that's part of why I'm here right now in Venice. That's why I moved. Not the only reason, but it's a willful choice of, of practicing what I preach or taking an idea and going for it. And um, you have to live in a way that you're, what's feeding your eyes and your inspiration is and it's going to sink through and seep out into your hands, into your work. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm Joe McHugh. In 2015, Paul and I planned a trip to northern Italy. We had two goals in mind, to record interviews with violin makers and others for the Rosin the Bow project, and to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. And what better place to celebrate that special day than by visiting the city of Venice. And here is where serendipity played its part. An American violin maker, one of the most respected in the world today, had moved from his home in Ann Arbor, Michigan, to live and work full-time in Venice. His name is Greg Alf, and he invited us to his workshop to record an interview. His workshop is on the third floor of an old house and is quite small. There's just enough room for a workbench, a few cabinets, and a couch. In fact, to go from the sitting area to the workbench, you have to duck under a large rafter. And as I looked at the back of a cello that Greg was carving, the wood graceful in its form and wonderfully figured, and at the chisels and small planes and patterns that hung on the wall, I was struck by a paradox, the paradox of simplicity versus complexity that exists at the core of this unique vocation that reaches back in time through many generations. Well, Greg and I talked for some time, and here is part one of that conversation, in which I trust you will find a pearl or two of violin wisdom. Well, I'm delighted to be here, and um, I want to start by just asking you whether there was any musicians in your family, or were there any violin makers, woodworkers? How do you think this uh, came down to you, the work that you now do in the world? Well, I was in, grew up in a musical family, so there was opera. Um, was, there were LP records, vinyl records in those days. But that was, a, you know, one of my earliest experiences of doing something carefully and uh, mindfully was dropping the needle on a vinyl record and using the family record player. And uh, now my, my kids probably wouldn't know what one was if they saw it. Certainly not how to use it, but um, but that was uh, my experience of music in the home. It was very musical, but there weren't violin makers in the home. My grandfather was a Baptist minister. I remember him taking believers into the water, into the river for you know baptism and kind. And he had an all black congregation. He was he, they would speak in tongues, and it was quite exciting to see him church and you know, preach at church. And I uh, had a farm, lived on a farm. I grew up on a farm in uh, Washington State. And uh, I, I, was, I was born in Los Angeles, but my family moved around a lot. And um, I probably lived in 15 different cities before I went into kindergarten. And um, you know, so I, we traveled a lot. And, but my family was musical, artistic, different, you know, certainly different like that. And... Um, um, that was the, the working with my hands and, um, and listening to music and, and art was all a part of my family life as a kid. So when did this idea come to you to make violins and um, what steps did you have to go through to get there? Yeah, I began um, as a violinist. I studied violin playing in high school. And um, actually, in my last years of high school, I went to um, boarding school in England, a musical boarding school. 
And I, my heart was set to be a concert violinist. And as I got there, I could hear young players half my age that were a lot better. <laughs> and I think the schools have an obligation to sort of orient their, their students you know, about their career chances. And I sort of realized that I wasn't you know, going to be in front of any orchestras for sure, and probably more like the last chair of the second violins, or I don't know. I just didn't have um, what it took to be a top violinist. And at the same time, I had a, a job in a music store. I had a chance to, to see other parts of it, and uh, I had a chance to do some violin repairs and um, a summer opportunity to make a violin in the white one summer with a violin maker, Willis Galt, in, in Washington, D.C., and uh, I loved it. It was sort of like a natural. It was, it's scary in a way, the smallest little things, you know, that make um, all the difference in your life. As a father now with a 15-year-old son and 10-year-old daughter, I'm acutely aware of the impression that, you know, small success in, or one summer, uh, a summer opportunity that was a formative experience for them, how small those things can be, and they make such a big difference later. But I made the one little violin in the white, I took it to Philadelphia. I had a lot of um, compliments. Actually, one violin maker there who was from the Mittenwald School said, I should forget it. I'd never be a violin maker. This is horrible. And it's not a very nice first violin. It's I often think I should organize a, a violin-making competition for the worst first violin of all my colleagues. I'm, I'm sure I would win that one. Um, so it was a very primitive instrument, but made with a lot of love. And it sounds great. So the other um, violin maker in Philadelphia was from the Cremona tradition, Cremona school, and he said, get yourself to Cremona. This is, you know, and he had a family there and, and set me up. And uh, I came over with $300 and a little suitcase. And I was 17 or 18 at the time. And um, had no particular experience of living. It was my first time out of my family home, except for you know, living in a boarding school. But making my own way, finding an apartment, finding, learning the language. I didn't speak Italian. I, I came in the middle of the summer, middle of August, I guess, and um, the school started in the middle of September, so I had a month or so to learn Italian. And um, part of getting in required some Italian language. That was the one thing they checked. Uh, and uh, I spoke with the director, and the time came, and it was kind of funny because I had learned Italian in a discotheque and with young people. Uh, just talking with young people in town in the summer break. So when I first met this uh, architetto Renzi, the director of the Cremona School, I, I put out my hand to shake hands very politely, and I said, ciao bello, which is like, hey, you doing, what's up, dude, <laughs> or something like that. I don't know how you would translate that, but certainly not the way you would greet, or I would greet a president now. And he was like taken aback, but he saw my sincerity. And I did speak the language, but so it was like, whoa. <laughs> I made friends with him. And, you know, we, you know, at that point he said, well, you know, we're on the sec first person basis now. It's like, you can keep calling, you know, but not in public, you know, in, in public or in front of, you know, it has to be lay, the polite forms like that. So we, I then, when I got into school, started getting proper Italian lessons and whatnot. But I got into the Cremona School, and that was in 1976. And I spent four years there uh, learning the craft, and um, or learning the basics of the craft, I'd say. I started a shop on my own. I had immediate success, probably because, I, as a player, I had an ear for sound. I could judge the sound of my instruments and adjust them. And... I also knew string players back in the United States, so I could sell my work. I had, you know, a sense of more money then than I have probably ever felt because I had a very simple lifestyle. And so even the little amounts that I was getting went a long way. And um, I had good success with my instruments. I won gold medals for, for tone in the uh, Violent Society of America 
um, competitions. Um, that's it's different than gold medals for workmanship. I mean, it would mean that they had very good sound in a basic level of workmanship, um, certificates of merit, and gold medal sound. And um, so, you know, I had a, developed a career and a name for my work, and that's how my initial entry into violin making here in Italy began. I'm curious, how did your parents react to this idea of you being 17 years old and going off to Italy to learn this uh, craft? Well, it was mainly, I think, my father who um, supported the idea. And um, when, I, when I left, and he must have been concerned or a little worried about a kid going over there. It seems like Europe was less dangerous then than now. I would be worried about my son going that far away now. And, um, you know, the other day, even, I was, as he's getting older, I was feeling sad a little bit, almost that the sense that they will come when he won't be writing even a postcard. But my wife reminded me, well, when you went to Italy, did you, you know? And it was actually true. I remember my dad begging me for letters. How are you doing there? At least, you know, even he'd send a postcard in the envelope, pre-stamped with an Italian stamp, to send this back, you know, just put it in a mailbox if you're, if you get this, you know. So I wasn't um, very, you know, thinking about my, I was thinking forward, thinking of my life. I was completely involved in things here. But the family was supportive of me coming over and supportive of um, the adventure, the risk. They, they sustained that nervousness of whatever they must have felt um, on my being in the world just with a faith that I'd be okay. And I did come back, and I, the instruments were flowing, and they, you know, um, so they, they knew I was working. They they came to visit, but it was, I think, a sort of a sort of generosity on their part to let me go in that way, to support me and let me go. But I sort of learned from that how to be a bit with my son as he gets into his directions, whatever they may, may be in the future. When I was first becoming a storyteller, I read a book called The Way of the Storyteller by Ruth Sawyer, and it was a brilliant book. And there was a, a story in there she told about this uh, man who had an, an upholstery business um, in Milan or someplace in Italy. And uh, every so often he would, he would pay for all of his employees to go to the opera. And when he was asked why he paid for that, and you know, it wasn't really directly related to the expenses of his shop, he said that uh, he really believed that uh, that music, that art, would go into every stitch that his workers put into the, uh, the upholstery they were doing. And he thought that was a good thing. And uh, I, I love that. And I, I just wonder what your thoughts are about how we can bring our art, our sense of art, our sense of culture, into the objects, the physical objects that we make. You know, right in that work, in the top of that workbench there, there's a little, um, I mean, I can't reach it right now, but I have a prayer that I have here for my studios, my, my um, shop motto or something like that, and I, I can't remember it word for word, but it's something like, um, dear God, thanks for the faith in me that you've given me such a marvelous um, undertaking or marvelous profession, and uh, with every instrument I make, I'm sort of putting my intentions, my best thoughts and wills, and putting it back out to the world. And, you know, I see violin making as a, for me, just for me, you know, it's it's a, a tool for spiritual growth, or a you know, it's a, a source of that growth because you're always you battle with yourself with you know, trying to be better and try to make things better and and uh, and and even like um, teaching. I've had apprentices, and I believe that it's important to pass on what you know to, to students like that. But um, again, the whole nature of an apprentice situation is that you're, if you're really doing it sincerely, you're helping an apprentice not need you. You know, you're really taking them on, and you know, I don't believe in the secrets and uh, that kind of the games and stuff. I think you should really see them as being your your apprentice as being not as separate of you, but having their own style and their own personality. And truly, you know, train them. It's like you're not a violin maker now. You're a violin. You're not making violins. You're making 
violin makers. You're teaching that way. So you see this product, this creative product that challenge that you have is how to develop um, the violins making in this person. And it's, you know, it works on against the ego. It's hard on the ego. You have to let go. It's like raising children in a way. You're, it's, you know, you have to let go of your sense of self or your, you know, with an apprentice, your your reward for the apprentice comes after they've they're trained. In the first year or so, when they're being trained, they're uh, you're not getting anything really back. And then after they are trained, oftentimes they want to leave because they they don't need you anymore. So you have to sort of do it anyway. And just generosity of spirit of, of the sharing and the teaching like that, and um, it comes back to you if no no other way because just makes you a better person and more. You learn things while you're teaching. You know, I think we all learn from each other. And so the violin making and some of the things that go along with it are formative for the spirit, for the personality, more than just being a, making violins. And of course, now we're listening to the Bells of Venice here uh, at this part of the interview. It's just charming. So why don't you tell me, you know, you said this has been a big choice of coming back to Venice to live here, and why Venice? And uh, what your questions and your hopes are still? Sure. Um, well, you know, even when I lived in Cremona, I loved Venice. It was, it was a, I had good memories as a child, as a young, young man, coming here on the weekends to get out of Cremona. And uh, it, was, it was a lot different then than it is now. It was more sleepy and more less visited, per se. But um, when the chance came or when the, the thought came with our family that we should try a year abroad, to see another perspective, to, to, to give our children the orientation that uh, there was another United States of Europe, you know, a, another part of the world to have a more you know, worldly um, view of life, of, of, of their planet, whatever. And also the culture, the, the art, they have the, the sense of... Um, living in, a, in an artistic environment like this. Venice seemed like a natural possibility. And we came one summer just to try it out when they were young, and they, they loved it. It was like, um, um, it's a safe town, so your children can roam without being kidnapped or getting you know, hit by a car or whatever. It's, you can, and the parents, the Italian parents, are very protective of the children, so they watch after each other's children and um, our kids literally um, with a little pocket camera sort of like Hansel and Gretel they would photo photograph where they were going and then follow the pictures back to know where they had been and we let them go even at a quite younger age this is five years ago we our kids were you know at that point they would have been six and eleven you know and we let them six and ten we let them roam for hours at a time. And um, it was safe. I mean, we, we'd get calls back that, you know, or friends would, would know, tell us later they'd seen the kids and they were having fun. And uh, they had a good time. So we thought, well, okay, we'll give it a try for a year. And we came over. But it's been a journey. It's like, um, you know, the first year we packed up half our thing, gave away half of our belongings packed up half of our belongings in a box and put them all in the, in the basement and we rented our home, our house. My violin shop went through a, like training sessions on remote management and uh, use of Dropbox and uh, we, we brought in a business consultant to set up tools and for me to be able to manage them back home. All I had was a business manager at that point and a shop assistant. And... Um, the first year went really well. I made more instruments here than I had ever made back in Ann Arbor. And we would um, make like a kit, prepare some of the, the basic woodworking there and bring it over so I didn't need a heavy workbench or power tools or anything like here. It was just like simple, traditional violin making. And I learned some ways of putting that together, working in batches that made, made it a lot more efficient. And it was a successful year, and the kids fell in love, and they, they learned Italian immediately. Within six months or so, they were speaking better than I was, or in the same level. I probably will never lose my American accent. 
But uh, and now that my son speaks much better in terms of the, the verbs and all the, the tech grammar of Italian, I'm inspired to to get my Italian better. But um, it was a successful year, and we stay, decided to stay on a second year, and that meant um, changing apartments and uh, the trauma of that. And we went back the next summer and took all our stuff out of storage and threw away half of it again. We didn't have a yard sale, and it was like a, it's too, how do you sell your wedding gifts? Or your, your, you know, by then we're down to things that meant something to us. So we gave them away, gave them to a church auction. And, uh, it's always, it's been this willful surrender of your material belongings or just ending the material life that sounds great. And living in Venice sounds great, and it is great, but it's, um, it's heavy stuff on a psychic level. I've had dreams where I was sort of floating between two shores and, you know, um, and lost in a way. They say home is where your heart is, but you better know where your heart is or you're homeless. And it's not just as simple as saying you have this intellectual value of our ideal of, of a creative life. And uh, uh, it is very beautiful here and it's very social, you know, not having cars walking everywhere you go, you see people. And uh, Venetians, when they look at each other, even if they're fighting and angry with each other, they there's a sense of investment in that other person because they've known them for 40 years and they'll know them another 40 years, the ones that truly live here and are part of a community. So there's sort of a, more of a medieval um, energy in some way that can survive longer when you don't have the, the outside world or the cars and that kind of it's a different feeling so i'm very happy like that it's it is a very high quality lifestyle and we're like walking in a museum in some ways but on another level it's heavy on the heart when you're some of your 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 friends and your belongings and some things that you intellectually can say yes i'm a better person because i've let go of my material belongings and my now more spiritual because i'm going but try doing it you know it's not easy. It takes um, it takes a toll. It takes some, you know, um, reaffirmation that um, there are many different ways you could do it, and uh, we chose this one, and um, and it's not bad. We're happy, and you know, we're very happy here. The challenges are more what we've left behind, and the most painful thing is when people ask, "Oh, so you decided to stay then, or you've decided." This is completely a, a question that would come from the old orientation of someone that was in their house that did have their wedding gifts still, or you know. Once we've gotten rid of them and we're more launched, we're like, it's like sailing and going out to sea, and you're in a little rowboat and you're out there now, and the shore has now disappeared, and you're on this adventure. But um, you know, it's. There's no answer to that question. We decided to stay. No, we haven't decided. We realize that that's not a question that we can that can orient us. It's not an outlook. <laughs> We're on an adventure here. And that adventure is uh, creating these wonderful objects, these things called violins here in Venice. Yeah, violins are an amazing expression of human spirit in a way. If you think of it, how many other, um, you know, man-made things are still around and being used in the same for the same usage? You know, hundreds of years later, that they're, you know, it's uh, whether it's a, I don't know, a, you might find an old teacup or something that still had its usage like that a thousands of years later, maybe or something basic like that. But um, you know, the violin is as an uh, object of you know Western art or whatever. It's been around a long time. So it is a kind of an icon of, of you know, what we're about. But um, I see that our lifestyle is also an icon like that. And that's what I'm sort of, I enjoy about living here, is the quality of our life is different than, than we back home, than, than we had back home. Just not being in a car one hour a day, for me, is lovely. And I still spend about an hour a day commuting, but it's walking different places. And walking anywhere, as you probably found out in these days here, you meet people, you see people. You, you I mean, you've seen it with me as we walked. 
you meet people. You have to add that in to your timing on how long it takes to commute to work. It's not the toll bridge or the or the tra- you know, the traffic lights that you have to t- factor in. You have to factor in the human thing that at seven o'clock you meet a lot of people because they're all out on the street and it takes time to get across town. Many people think of Cremona as the home of violin making in Italy, uh, but violin making happened in many cities and uh, happened in Venice. And uh, maybe you could tell us about the tradition of violin making here in this city, since this is where you now live. Well, the, um, you know, Venice was a center of of uh, European history, or even almost world history at some at some point, and. Um, there, there was a lot of music here, a lot of culture, a lot of church, both church music. There was um, the Pieta. There was an orphanage that had, you know, with Vivaldi and, um, you know, and um, which was right here in, in Venice. And the um, a lot of the um, the Doges and the, the wealthy people had or had their their children in the orphanage. Little um, little mistakes or little whatever happened. They, they had an interest in supporting them. They still loved the kids, I suppose, and they made sure they had a good life. And music was provided as a way of supporting the orphanage. And so you had kind of church music and, and music in the squares. It was, it was a vibrant musical town. And um, Some research has uncovered lately that motets, you know, which we think of as a vocal uh, thing, uh, five-part vocal music, um, were actually played by instruments rather than, rather, not as well as, but rather than being sung in those days. There's a archival thing where somebody was actually brought up on charges of kind of heresy for appearing in the uh, a church service with a singer for one of the parts because the musician was was sick, and so they they substituted a, a, one of the parts with the singer. So you could see that they really had the tradition of playing that music, and not necessarily it was all by violins, but there was a very musical town like that. And um, so the first violin makers that came down actually were coming down from uh, Germany, from what the, the mountains north of town, which would have been you know the Black Forest and all that. They were it was um, you know. Uh, the, the the school is more of a German kind of violin making in the beginning, but there had been other instrument makers of different types, and so even before um, Amati and Cremona, you had the beginnings of violin of violas, really, you know, like uh, makers like Linarolo or Mondrian Kaiser, working here in Venice. So that's sort of the the background of it. They there is a Venetian look. I would say, this is there's a criminalist look of beautiful, um, you know, of, of a classic form, and uh, an expert will look at a criminalist um, drawing, the proportional drawings, and you proportional uh, DNA of the instrument of the outlines, and, and you can see and feel uh, an authentic criminalist violin in that way, much more accurately than taking measurements or something that could be could be faked. And in the same way, there's a sort of a, uh, a Venetian spirit and a look. If you look at the F-holes or you look at the things. Um, so there is a Venetian kind of um, a spirit to things. And, and living in Venice, you're trying to get the feeling of that, not just in the violins, but in the mast and the gondola, you know, the the, the, the focal lot of, they, they, they call it the, the rowing, um, the parts of the boat and uh, different of uh, the, the Gothic and the some of the, sort of Arabic-looking Muslim, you know, the different influences that blend together from the different cultures that this was a melting pot of cultures. So there's a a feeling for it that wasn't there in Cremona, and it's uniquely Venetian. And uh, I should say I'm still trying to to get that. Um, I'm in a place in my own work where I want to develop my own personal models, my my own look that way. I think... My goal is to to let some of that seep into my work, to capture that, and to you know let it come through in what I'm doing. It's a pity when we just copy the, a Cremonese or a Stradivari model or something like that, rather than showing who we are, what what we're where we are immersed. I noticed something the other day about the gondolas. Um, you know, you see them everywhere, of course, in Venice, 
and uh, I saw some that were pulled up on the pier, and I was looking at them, and I realized they're they're not straight. I don't know why I thought they would be, but they they sort of have this bend. They're canted to one side. And uh, I watched how they were operated by the gondolier, and I realized that they had to be that way. And I was just, uh, and I was thinking about violins being made in Venice and whether they were very symmetrical or they had some sort of asymmetry to them. Um, I have a violin from Germany that I play, and I, I love it. It's a great violin, but it's it's not symmetrical. The neck is canted off to one side, and uh, but it's, it sounds great. Some of the thing about the um, the Italian system of violin making, the the whole way of assembling an instrument is it's almost those kind of things would be almost built in because they um, in the Baroque time they would attach the neck to the rib cage, the rib garland first separately. and then then they would uh, make the outlines from there. and so you you basically were building in dissymmetry into um, a um, design, an outline drawing that was symmetrical to begin with. So you have variation, theme and variation, I guess you'd say, from a Western you know, artistic uh, tradition. You have these, so you have an outline that's sort of funky, sort of like it's one shoulder's drooping down, the other shoulder's drooping out, you know, like that. So, it, But it's not undisciplined. It still comes from a tradition. It comes from a roots of construction. And looking at the violin tells you the construction um, roots from which it came. So it's not just like a free-form abstract art. It's It's got a real design concept behind it. And um, just by coincidence, I became involved with the Jackson Pollock show that was here the other day. I mean, there's, they're showing this, the largest Jackson Pollock painting in the world, the mural, it's called, which hung behind the library checkout desk in Iowa City when I lived there. And um, now it came over, and I knew the curator of the, of the museum that owns it, and um, I had the chance to, to be with them when they brought the painting into the museum, and, and therefore, and, you know, when it arrived here in Venice on a big barge and, and a whole night of taking down Picassos and, you know, abstract, and modern sculptures and whatnot to make room for this arrival of this visiting painting. And I had a chance to talk with some of the... Um, the great experts about Jackson Pollock, well, in that the English and French and uh, German and whatnot, and and learn about why is it Jackson Pollock and what is going on there. To many, it would look and to me as well like a complete abstract painting, a dribble painting like that. But that's not the case. There is form and variation. There's a lot behind and the surface and there's not, there's a story of the creation of the of the object and that is so unique and personal and the one curator said to me as we stood in the garden at the Guggenheim looking around he said you know look here the, at 50 meters tell me the names of things you recognize and you could recognize a, a more sculpture or you know a Giacometti or uh, a Picasso you could recognize these things a Jackson Pollock you could recognize their person that could say, okay, that's a Pollock, right? Because they are kind of iconic in a way. And we have to be that way in our work. I, you should be able to look at one of my violins and say, yeah, that's a Greg. And if you were back in the 1700s and you put a Stradivari, a Guarneri, a Guadagnini, a Bergonzi, an Amati all on a table, even, I mean, today, with an hour's time, I could teach any violinist, any string player to tell them apart. And they could you know, they might not be able to certify them against a, f a fake or something like that, but the, the original instruments put one against the other. They're different. They show the personality of the makers that are there, even though they came from a, a similar tradition and a similar construction method. And I think we have to do that with our work now so that we have a tradition from where we come in our work. We honor that, but we show ourselves in the work so there's something of us and a personality that looks like us. And right now I'm living in Venice, and this is who I am, and the air I breathe, and the food I eat. I want my instruments to look like me living here and doing that. And it's so easy to copy um, Tardivari and I'm off, or, or Guarneri, or the, you know, look in the rearview mirror as you're, you know, respecting your past, which is good. But you have to look forward in a way, and it's harder said than you know, it's easier said than done, because they're great makers. 
You know, there's, there's a great tradition. It's like Beethoven suddenly, you know, wanting to be Mozart and to follow what he had heard like that. And it'd be a pity. We'd never have, you know, the, his genius if he had just copied what he'd seen. I think there's something else to consider, and that's how our ideas of what is musical have been subtly changing over the years. And modern instruments are either driving that change or responding to that change. We talked about, for example, uh, how some orchestras today are raising their concert pitch, their 440. I'm wondering what that's all about. Well, if they, you know, they say the evolution of the violin, you know, as a acoustically speaking, is related to the changes of usage, the moving out of a of a of a church, of a the, the acoustics kind of high reverb, warm sound of a, of a church to a concert hall, louder larger audiences, soloistic use rather than accompanying, you know, like that. So you have this sort of a second generation or a second, you know, main type of an evolution of the violin sound. And uh, the instrument evolved with that, you know, from the modern setup, from a Baroque setup. So, of course, longer neck, higher pitch. The, the, a, the, the A440 was not always lower. And here in Venice, it was sometimes almost at the same. And the neck lengths were similar. They weren't necessarily shorter here. Um, but um, they, I would argue there's all, um, almost a third school, a third evolution taking place. And that is um, CDs, you know, electronic. Most people probably today in the world that have heard a violin concerto have not heard it in a concert hall. They've heard it on a CD. And they've heard it over headphones. And uh, you can record it and then change the sound and um, the gain and um, the orchestra and all that. So the need of a, of a violin now is different than even in Paganini's time. It was different from Paganini's time to actually Stradivari's time when it was made, or Guarneri's time when it was made, because Paganini, of course, played the Guarneri. So it changed, you know, and maybe Guarneri got it lucky. He made a violin that was really well adapted later for the kind of playing that Paganini did, and now it's changing again. So who knows where it'll go in the future. So you spent a great deal of time making these wonderful instruments, these violins, violas, and cellos, and then you get to hear them played. Uh, what's that like, you know, to hear somebody who really knows what they're doing play one of your instruments? Well, yes. Um, to me, to hear my instruments played makes it all come to be real. I mean, the secret to making a great violin, I always say, is to put it into great hands. Because a great player will bring out the, the you know, the qualities of an instrument, the, the, the best of an instrument. And... Um, that is when you see what you're doing, you see the relevance of what you're doing. And I don't think a violin maker can make a better violin than the quality of string players for whom they work, that are sponsoring them. So if you're working with high school kids, you're going to make great high school instruments. But when you get a chance to work with um, a great artist, so then, you know, that's something changes. When I moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan, Ruggiero Ricci was the professor there, and he took an interest in our work. And um, he was such a humble man. He he would, um, you know, for who he was as a star, as a as a leader of our field, he would often say, you know, we we'd spend a lot of time together. He'd stop and say, I hope you don't mind. I hope I'm not taking too much of your time. But we listen to him play and listen to him practice and. Um, I could get a feeling of how a concert artist approached the instrument, what they were looking for in the instrument. And um, it became, it's an important part, an orientation about what we do, to hear your instrument used in that way. And of course, it's flattering, you know, it's, it's heartwarming when you can go to a concert and it's your instrument's there, or there's no end of anecdotes, you know, about... The time, for example, when I've made a replica and uh, the artist finally decided to sell his Guarneri after realizing he had been playing the copy without knowing it, without, I mean, he had both in the case and he played a concert and afterwards it was in the green room and they, someone asked the usual question about what you played and, you know, realized that um, he had played one instead of the other and hadn't known. So and he decided at that point to sell the Guarneri. 
so you have these stories like that, and they feel good, but um, they don't really in themselves help you make become a better maker. It just sort of encourages you if you're down or whatnot. And a good artist is always down about their work. You know, you have this little monkey on your shoulder that's secretly telling you you're a fake, you're a fraud. Do that better. This wasn't good enough. And, you know, um, then you have to go out and when you market and present yourself, you have to somehow feel good about your work. And, you know, uh, even to, to be able to varnish an instrument, you have to feel positive in some way. And this emotional roller coaster of... Um, and if you love an instrument too much, you're going to have to hate it before it's done. And if you're hating it too much, you won't be able to finish it. And so it's like to stay balanced and just professional about it and do your best work and um, not mistakes, but at the same time, not sterile. Just let it show who you are. It's um, a lifestyle. We can't choose to be artistic. You know, we're, we're not artists, we're artisans. It's history that will decide later whether we are artists in our work and the best we can do about that right now is just to live in an artistic lifestyle to you know that's part of why i'm here right now in venice that's why i moved not the only reason but it's a willful choice of of practicing what i preach or taking an idea and going for it and um you have to live in a way that you're what's feeding your eyes and your inspiration is is going to sink through and seep out into your hands into your work is interesting and um hearing a player use your instrument is a part of that it's this it's coming back this feeds the soul for why you're doing it and what it's all about to me it makes the makes it all come home let's listen now to christy Giuseppe perform Fantasy for Solo Violin by Ellen Zilwich on a violin made by Greg Alf at the 2014 International Violin Competition in Indianapolis, Indiana. When I entered your shop today, I saw on the table 
a, a copy of the I Ching, an Italian translation. And that got me wondering um, what your thoughts might be about the violin and the making of violins in relationship to the spiritual world. Well, I absolutely experienced the violin that way. I mean, it's um, as a violin maker, you know, you're working with a knowledge. When I work, at least, I have this sense of projecting my intentions past my hands into a wooden item I'm holding, into the work that I'm doing. And it's like um, I've trained as a massage therapist at one point, and you know, there you're you're consciously projecting your energy, your your healing intention through your hands into the person you're working with. And it's the same thing with the violin making. And, um, you know, whether it's um, love of your work or some other energy that we haven't made a name for yet, there are things going on that is beyond just the physics and that we know now. We're learning a lot more about violin making today, whereas we apply science to the, to the craft and... Uh, with cat scanning and you know all these we can take the three-dimensional elements out of it make it you know we know a lot about the three-dimensional shapes and the the densities and all that and acoustics is getting you know more and more information even psychoacoustics these days about how we perceive the sound and whatnot but there are other parts of it that seem to be going on just of loving your craft loving your work and uh, i've had experiences with um uh, with a guru one time who we invited to our home, he needed a hip operation and a hip replacement. And the, the thought of a, a guru, he was a um, traveled, he had about poverty, traveled the world just helping people. And he'd give lectures on, on yoga, but it was more often family problems that he'd have to sort out at first. And, he, and then this, then he needed a hip replacement. And the thought of a, uh, a guru that uh, yogi and then couldn't do yoga. Uh, was so sad that my um, my wife offered to help him raise the money, and so we, as a family, took this ch challenge on, and we raised seventy thousand dollars for his hip replacement. And he came to our home, and he lived with us for a couple months. And this surgery was done in Ann Arbor. And while he was there, he had a chance to see the shop. And I had a Guarneri del Gesù um, at that time that was on, on the sofa the first time he came in with the other instruments and he immediately went over to the, the to the Guarneri and picked it up and I was curious why that one over other ones. The other ones were antique. They weren't, um, you know, they there was a visual difference. You, to me, I would know which one it was and I was curious what he had seen and he told me there was an energy to it. He had a he could feel an energy of that violin, a, a karma or something about it, and I was very curious about that. So I went to Penny's. We got a dozen pillowcases, and um, the next day when he came, all the violins were in pillowcases on the on the um, on the sofa, and he could pick that Guarneri out. And we did it every time for a week, and he could absolutely out of one. And in fact, at the end, I put the Guarneri in the safe, and he sort of said, well, you're tricking me. You know, it's like, it's not there. It's behind and pointed at the safe. So he could feel the energy field of that violin somehow. I mean, the one out of seven chances or one out of ten times that he did it. But he could, you know, and I asked him, what is this, you know? And he knew that this violin had a lot of generosity around it, but a lot of some, some stinginess too and some other, you know, things. And he could feel sort of the, the soul of the violin in some way. And... Um, it's oh, there's even at the end of the violin I made that year that m month with him while he was there he did a little blessing inside of the violin and wrote some things and the instrument sounds better than anything I've ever made or it sounds exceptionally well and it sounds exceptionally like a Guarneri it's I think a, a Guadagnini model but it sounds like the violin that he so he said later he'd taken some of the energy of this one and he put it in the violin in the blessing that he did on the other one and in fact a major shop that then saw the violin later that that has a sort of scientific bent of their own I won't name names but the, I got a call about that they're wondering if he could do it more do it again with other instruments or new instruments if we could make a business model of that and and he said. Well, certainly you could, but you have to create the energy to begin with. And so, I mean, you did a really wonderful thing with me, you know. You'd have to live a, uh, a blessed life and helping people and create a positive energy f around you, which you could then channel and, and 
turn into your work, and this is what life is about. After I hopefully you're already doing that, and maybe you are because you have good results. So, so I thought, well, you know, there's stuff going on that we don't know about. And he told me, you know, he asked, you know, in the time of the Egyptians, you know, did atomic energy exist? Of course, it did. They didn't know the name for it. They didn't know what it was. Probably we think, you know, but it, nuclear energy is a as, as an energy form did exist then, and they just uh, didn't know about it. And so what other energies exist that we don't know about yet? But maybe we're still using some way, I don't know. But it, it's, you know, violin making is kind of a lonely job sometimes. You know, you're doing things that you've done many times, and it's not that your mind wanders, but you're kind of meditating while you work. And... Um, so these are, it's a nice thing to be aware of, the potential of what you're doing, you know, to have a feeling for something more than just a mechanical trade, a mechanical act that you're doing, to think of, of something more, a little bit more existential or whatever in, in the work of the day. I find that helpful. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project, to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. And let me leave you now with a quote from the I Ching. Heaven within the mountain points to hidden treasure. In the words and deeds of the past, there lies hidden a treasure that men may use to strengthen and elevate their own characters. The way to study the past is not to confine oneself to mere knowledge of history, but through application of this knowledge to give actuality to the past. <laughs>